sin ánimo de nada? ¿Te serías un poco de música para bailar que te toque el corazón al mismo tiempo? Tal vez, y solo tal vez, lo que necesitas es una dosis de Gracias a la Vida. Este sábado, de 11 a 1 de la tarde, en WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill y 99.9 Bangor. En Internet estamos en WERU.org. Es un programa hecho pensando en ti. Do you need music to dance to, which will melt your heart and soothe your soul? Then, listen to Gracias a la Vida. This Saturday morning, from 11 to 1, on WERU. FM 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 Bangor or WERU.org A voice of many voices. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. It is time now for our required weekly test of the emergency alert system. This is just a test. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported, nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. The time is 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Common Ground. Good morning. Welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is CJ Walk, and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU. We are open to suggestions on future topics and guests for the show, so please feel free to contact us with your thoughts and ideas through our website, which is www.mofga.org. So today, the topic for our show, we'll be talking about food recovery and gleaning as a, main, as a means of distributing food to those in need. Uh, recent data from the USDA estimates that 15% of Maine households, or more than 200,000 people, are food insecure. And a person is considered food insecure if they lack access to enough food to ensure adequate, adequate nutrition and often do not know when or where they will have their next meal. So Maine ranks 17th in the nation for food insecurity and ranks first in New England. Um, and we'll get into more of that as we get into the show today. Uh, but for today's show, I have a couple of guests here in the studio with me. And before I introduce them and we get into discussion, I just want to make listeners aware of a few um, upcoming events that are farm and food related that they might find of interest here in our community. So on January 11th is the Penobscot County Annual Stone Soup Social, which is at the Bangor Grange. Doors open at 2 p.m. with a meal starting around 3. And they're saying to bring your veggies of choice and add, add to the soups. And uh, for more information or to RSVP, please call, the number is 745-4797. And then also later this month, running from January 13th through the 15th, is the Maine Agricultural Trade Show, which is held every year at the Augusta Civic Center. And uh, more, informa more information can be found through the state's website, or we also have it posted on MOFCA's website, uh, which is MOFCA.org. And within that trade show, January 13th is the MOFCA Day at the trade show where MOFCA offers a series of presentations and discussion groups on a wide range of sustainable agriculture topics. And all the presentations there are free and they are open to the public. And at 1.30 that afternoon is MOFCA's <coughs> annual meeting, uh, which is always a lot of fun if you care to join us on that day. But as we get into the show today, again, we're talking about food recovery and gleaning. 
as a way of kind of accessing food and distributing it to those that are in need. And I have two guests in the studio here with me today. I have sitting to my left here is, is Chris Brown of Brown Family Farm down in Otter Creek. And he also um, runs the Food for All operation in Bar Harbor and putting together an organic recyclers organization, which we'll hear more about today. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having us. Sure. And then also we have Tina Kegley, who is from Sedgwick. And Tina volunteers with the Gleaning Initiative that is run by Healthy Acadia. And she also volunteers for the Magic Food Bus, which is down on the peninsula uh, during the summertime. Correct? Thanks for being here, Tina. Thank you. So um, I'd like to remind listeners that this is a call-in show. And shortly we'll be opening up the telephone lines, and I'll give that number um, Once we get into discussion, I'll give out the number for people to call in with comments or questions. But at first, I'd like to kind of get a little deeper into the introductions with our guests and um, just ask them a little bit more about what they do and why. And uh, Chris, I'd like to start with you, if that's okay, and just kind of ask you basically kind of um, what was your background and how did you get started in um, working with the food recovery and gleaning activities that you do? Purely by accident. <laughs> uh, my Basically, my training is a medical uh, training. I'm both a respiratory therapist and a speech pathologist by training. And back in, say, about nine, uh, 2006, uh, going through some uh, period of difficulties and raising animals um, as a means of food for my family, I went looking for some stale bread. Mm-hmm. And when I went looking for that stale bread, I had a profound experience that changed my life, uh, recognizing the amount of food that was being wasted. And it kind of went something like, uh, maybe as the price is right, if, for those of you who remember, they would reach out their hand and say, choose a curtain, but one or two or three. And it was kind of explained to me that way as I was brought into the back room, showing everything that was being thrown away. Yep. The manager's hand came out and said, with a big wave and a brush, this is what we throw out every day. And when my eyes saw what was being tossed out, I had a profound epiphany. And mm-hmm. that basically changed my life at that moment. Mm-hmm. At that very moment, I realized, wow, <laughs> this shouldn't be thrown away because it looked like really good food. And to give you an example or a visualization for that, there were several boxes of breadstuffs and there were several boxes of bakery and there were boxes of vegetables that looked fine to me. Mm-hmm. Realizing that that was available, I took it and, and started to distribute it um, and basically started to study around that, uh, what do you do with all this food? Mm-hmm. And there was a lot, a lot there that was available that that wasn't going, where was it going at the time? Well, basically it was all going to be thrown into the waste stream. Yeah. The, uh, the thing of it was that that very moment, several epiphanies, if you will, happened. Um, one of them I had envisioned being able to make soup, um, hermetically sealing it in a cryovac container, like the way soy milk comes, and, and manipulating that for pantries and FEMA as a resource for emergency food rations. If it was done properly, and let's say we were going and gleaning potatoes and leeks from our main farms and making a potato leek soup in a hermetically sealable container, that could be eaten at room temperature. Mm -hmm. And uh, thinking about environmentally friendliness, maybe we can fill that with sand or mud and make it a building block afterwards. I don't know. (laughs) But the notion was, what do you do with all this food? Yeah. Okay. So that's a little bit of the background. Yeah. First, opening your eyes to the issue. It was interesting, too, because um, it was not of it was not a very popular thing at the time either and the other piece was that it seemed as the manager was showing me this foodstuffs that there was some kind of a stigma associated with it where they felt bound um, not to really let this become a popular idea that Mm -hmm. they were wasting food and being very sensitive to these things I began to study um, this kind of work and once I recognized the Bill Emerson Food Act Um, I felt completely confident to share that information and empower the stores of the world that they are in the business of selling tomorrow's food and we are in the business of getting today's food. So the Bill Emerson Food Act briefly is a 
it's a tool for the gleaner. It protects the gleaner. It's mm -hmm. a Good Samaritan law that is very specific on how persons who go out and do this kind of work are protected from frivolous lawsuits. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that down the line. But, um, Tina, how about the work that you do volunteering and kind of what brought you to that place? A couple of years ago, a friend of mine told me that um, this woman was looking for help to glean gardens, mm -hmm. and I volunteered to do it. Yeah. I like gardening. I like getting my hands dirty. Um, and I've been doing it for two years now. Okay. And we do it from the time the plants start becoming viable yeah. to when it's too cold and too wintry outside <laughs> to do it anymore. And the ground um, starts to freeze. When the ground freezes, we don't do it anymore. Okay. And that's with the Gleaning Initiative with Healthy Acadia. Yes. And yes, then so also the the magic food bus piece. Kind of fell into that. Hannah Semler is okay. the one that got me involved in both of them. Okay. Um, she and I did the gleaning mostly together yeah. the first year. And she just told me she needed a volunteer for Blue Hill. And mm -hmm. that's where that started. And is the magic food bus, is that through Healthy Acadia? Or is that it a is. different? It's, it's all combined. Okay. Healthy, Healthy Acadia, Healthy Peninsula. Okay. All right. Okay, then, um, again, thanks you, thank you guys for joining me here on the show. <clears throat> and I would like to be able to open up the phone lines to any listeners that may have a question or comment. And, again, uh, we're talking about uh, gleaning and food recovery. And the uh, phone number here in the studio, if you want to call with a question or comment, is one 625 9378 And we'd gladly take your call. Um, how about, now that we've got a little bit of the history of kind of where, how long you guys have been involved and where that came from, I wanted to ask a little bit more about the history of food recovery or the word gleaning itself. It seems like there's a lot of publicity in recent years around it, but it's my understanding that it's not a new word. Gleaning itself is not a new word or an activity. No, that's correct. We definitely did not invent this kind of work. Um, gleaning is as old as dirt. Yep. There's... Um, many biblical references about it. There's actually a prescribed way uh, that people were supposed to uh, leave the fields at the end of harvest so that the folks who were unfortunate um, in uh, socioeconomic standings could come in and collect foodstuffs. So the prescription um, on how to do that is pretty detailed uh, in Old Testament readings. But if we think about it, in America, uh, gleaning has fallen deaf on our ears for about 100, 150 years because we haven't had to. Mm -hmm. Think about the apple tree in a neighborhood that drops a couple hundred pounds of apples, and yesterday it pretty much stayed there, and yeah. the deer ate it, and it refertilized the ground. Maybe a few people picked up a few apples to make a pie, yeah. or maybe some fresh applesauce. But now, it's quite popular that there's groups of individuals going out and collecting those materials and sharing those with people that need them. Yeah. So gleaning is certainly nothing new. However, this modern-day gleaner is fairly new. Mm -hmm. For example, um, somewhere around 40% of all the food that's ready to be consumed today, not just food that was from a restaurant, but foodstuffs that's on store shelves and whatnot, will be wasted. And the, and the reasons behind this are deep. Um, an example would be that they may need to make room for tomorrow's food. Mm -hmm. So what do you do with today's? Well, guess what? There's an opportunity for us right there. The other piece is that all day long in stores, um, managers are making decisions that might um, put a, a better looking product on the shelf. For example, let's say asparagus uh, was being stored onto the shelf that had been nipped by frost. That definitely does not look as pretty, if you will, as asparagus that had not. Yep. That produce person is gonna pull that asparagus and what's called shrink it out of the service or the uh, inventory. When they scan that box of asparagus back out, the store is credited for that and they can do that, make those decisions on the fly. Well, what happens to that case of asparagus that was nipped by frost? Well, it can go into a couple of different categories. And this is what the Bill Emerson Food Act helps us understand. Mm -hmm. For instance, if that is 
still apparently wholesome, then it could be consumed by humans. It could be cooked off and, and fed out, if you will. If it's really not up to speed for human consumption, then it has the potential for fitting into a USDA feed ingredient for animals. So there, again, it has a direct application. Of course, if it's not really good for humans or animals, it could be composted, or it could be turned into a fuel product. So that's the model that we follow. Mm -hmm. We're trying to develop that through what we call organic recyclers. So it should go to people first, animals, compost, and fuel. And that's kind of the, that's the progression there, or the hierarchy, depending on the quality, quality of the material. That's correct, and, and also the actual materials themselves mm -hmm. will, will dictate where they should be going. Okay. Whether it was uh, that box of asparagus or maybe some vegetable oil. Correct. Right. So if you think about it, um, you know, when you go into any store, they want to keep their shelves really full mm -hmm. and um, fronted and whatnot with the most updated product. The dating or the labeling systems on um, foodstuffs also cause a, a great deal of confusion. The sell-by date or the best-by date, mm -hmm. which I believe is uh, currently being revamped by the USDA. But presently, it creates a great deal of confusion and also it's attributed to creating part of the food waste problem itself. So all that bread has to come off the shelf by 3 p.m. Mm -hmm. to make room for all the new bread. For so tomorrow. That's, yeah, and that's really good. Yep. Okay. And how about, uh, Tina, in the work with your volunteering, are you working more directly with farms rather than, say, a grocery store situation? We work with, directly with the farms, yes. Directly with farms? Yeah. And um, are they farms that are mostly on the Blue Hill Peninsula, or...? We've gone down to Waldo County before. You have? Okay. <clears throat> we go down um, and get the produce that they are not... It, it's not up to par for them to sell. Mm -hmm. Might have some dings in it or be bruised. Yep. But we take that to the food kitchens and the the um, food pantries and the soup kitchens, and okay. we're relied to take what we need it for ourselves, for mm -hmm. our own families, and it gets distributed pretty evenly. Mm-hmm. And what doesn't get distributed does go to compost, so. Okay. Okay. And then how how much time do you put in as a volunteer? I'm curious. As much as she's able to give yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> she calls me five days a week and tells me she needs help. I'm there. Okay. You know, if, I, if I'm not doing anything else at the time. Yeah. You know, we put in a couple of hours a day or, you know, we can put up to whatever is needed, basically. Okay. Okay, so helping get the foods from the uh, the vegetables from the farms to the food pantries. Mm -hmm. So mostly vegetables, I'm assuming. Yes. Not much yes. meat products or no oils. Not, or not yet. Okay. Not yet. There, there's a cause for it and there's a need for it, but mm -hmm. we just haven't grown that far yet. Still working the yes. infrastructure piece. Yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Chris, I wanted to ask about some of the other activities that you're involved in, uh, in terms of where does the food go? Um, but actually maybe first, just since we were talking about the, uh, the grocery store piece, I'm wondering, you know, can you just give a little picture of, of what that relationship looks like? How does that work? Um, those are, um, it, it's very interesting to go into grocery stores and develop that kind of rapport. And that's pretty much what you have to do. It's rapport building, it's uh, developing uh, a trusting relationship with those providers and, and the individuals that help you as well, that you can you know, safely and effectively move that foodstuffs um, and represent it properly. So part of the, uh, the way we've moved along was to collect these food materials and have a public meal, and we call that Food for All, and it's a community meal that happens in Baharbar on Thursdays from 4 to 7 p.m., um, where the balance of collected foods will be cooked off and prepared uh, as a hot meal in a buffet style, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's open to the public. With that, there's also a fair amount of material, food materials that are given away in a pantry-style um, opportunity, too. The reason we've built this out as a community meal is to help the... Uh, destigmatization of uh, the poverty issues that we have presently in our own backyard 
but also to help move this food recovery and gleaning into more common dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great deal of misinformation when it comes to um, whether the what the food is, who should get the food, and who should be doing that. Um, those dialogues are continuing to uh, expand and hopefully continue to come to a mutual agreement. But basically, somebody's got to get it, somebody's got to safely deal with it, and then move it uh, to the, through that continuum. The uh, Food for All program has become extremely successful as this particular region of the country has become extremely um, taking on a leadership role in both uh, what they would call meal sites, which are ultimately soup kitchens, and pantry sites. Um, I believe the growth in Hancock County alone leads the nation in those uh, food security and security issues. So what's happened with Food for All is um, we found a civic organization or a church organization that has a commercial kitchen space and we bring in people who want to cook, who want to volunteer, but also we have a trained group of people. I'm a food safety manager myself mm -hmm. and then we have trained chefs and we'll prepare that meal and offer it to the public. And on an average we're seeing oh, 100 to 150 people on a Thursday and from that group of people a good third are in need, significantly uh, involved um, in poverty issues. And then there's a, another third that seem to be in a working poor kind of a socioeconomic group. And then there's another third that is probably more affluent that would be able to support the people who are on the poorer end of things. So there is no uh, specific request for a donation but there's a donation bucket available and people can drop in a dollar or two if they want. Mm -hmm. um, but there is budgets that mm -hmm. uh, need to be adhered to when we're dealing with this project. So presently we've organized it uh, through uh, a nonprofit organization called Farm Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, Farm Tomorrow is a uh, farmtomorrow.org, a group out of Goolsboro who are intimately familiar with uh, antique, the antiquities of farming and want to continue to uh, maintain those. Um, farming practices has accepted our gleaning as a, an antique farming practice mm -hmm. and has supported us uh, being our fiscal sponsor for uh, Food for All. Mm -hmm. That helps you balance out the budget and manage finances. That's correct because there is, you know, there's a there's a huge volunteer component here but there's still an opportunity for a paid person to do this kind of work too. Um, it's an everyday kind of event. It's not that the stores are not producing food one particular day or another. So there's huge amounts of food all day, every day. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like the work would, would, nev would never end, more or less. One of the other pieces is that being um, recognized as a nonprofit gives us an opportunity to uh, look for um, awards or grant dollars to perpetuate this work. To help fund. Correct. To help fund the issues, yes. Um, <clears throat> uh, I just wanted to also ask about um, volunteerism mm -hmm. and the sense of community, I think, that both both of you are looking at. Um, I don't know if, uh, um, I mean, what is it, neither of you are getting paychecks necessarily, no. correct? correct? I mean, there are some budgets maybe with being able to put on a meal and everything that goes on, but... Um, being paid um, for these activities is not, it, it does not really It's not part of it. There is a stipend that we're trying to hope for for uh, the manager of Food for All. So there is, there is potential okay. for a paid position or two. Okay. And I think, do we have a phone call? Someone trying to get in on the phone? I'm not sure. We'll have to keep on going until we hear from the, the station. <laughs> I'm sorry, we had a hand-delivered question, I guess, that just showed up. Um, so we'll consider this a, a question from the phone here, but Yo from Tremont is calling or handing in a note saying, uh, could you share with listeners your techniques for sorting and handling discarded food? And thank you for putting on this program. So I guess the for sorting and handling... I think part of that would come back to this Bill Emerson Food Act. It provides you with a little bit of protection. That's correct. correct. 
we've become the experts in the Bill Emerson Food Act, and I say we because a lot of folks don't even know about this act. Yeah, um, it's a great it's a great law. It's on our web page. You can find that on our Food for All page. Um, but basically, understanding that helps, and it definitely helps you develop that dialogue with your neighborhood store manager um, to help them feel that they're not going to be sued for getting rid of this food and, and help you begin to figure out the different categories the food falls into. Mm -hmm. So with that, we have a couple categories I'll offer right now. One is considered apparently wholesome. Isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> apparently wholesome. Apparently wholesome. <laughs> it's apparently wholesome, um, and we as consumers make that judgment, and it fits into several criteria, though, that the packaging is intact, the food itself looks good, there's no deleterious materials there, and the coating is intact as well. The um, a, Another category, for example, would be pre-consumer waste. Uh, pre-consumer waste would be things like that a prep cook was uh, preparing while they were in the kitchen dealing with those issues professionally. For instance, um, melon skins and seeds, avocado pits and skins, uh, the, bases, the base uh, pieces of lettuces and such. Mm -hmm. Those things fall into a category of pre-consumer waste, and those are great for animals. Most of, most of that would be... Um, Great fodder for monogastrics, pigs, chickens, mm -hmm. fowl, basically. And there's a huge another category, a huge category called post-consumer waste, which would be things like plate scrapings, uh, which come out of uh, mostly restaurants or cantinas or cafeterias and such. The thing about post-consumer waste that's more cumbersome from the USDA's point of view and any particular farmer's perspective is that there's a potential for pathogen transmission with post-consumer waste. So for it to be an acceptable feed ingredient, which would fit in the USDA's categories mm -hmm. uh, of, of acceptable foodstuffs for animals, that material would need to be cooked at boiling for 30 minutes before it could go out to critters. So probably not the most efficient way to deal with post-consumer waste, but it does have an application, and you will see that on certain um, listings on feed ingredients or prepared feed ingredients. Um, but basically, it's more compostable mm -hmm. or has an application in production of, of fuel. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's a bit of the, the categories within the Act that provide some, some protection. And I think that when we're talking about... Um, kind of traditional farm-based gleaning and more kind of grocery store, supermarket, new modern, modern gleaning. Um, make it those terms, modern and traditional. But the handling, to answer uh, the question from, from Yo here, is that the handling would be a little bit different. So I would think that, Tina, if you're going to farms to gather, um, are you gathering often gathering, gathering crops out of a field, yes. or are they things in storage already? Some of it is in storage, some of it's in the field. Some in the field. Yeah. So I imagine, can you describe some of the, like the, the packaging and handling <laughs> would be just traditional? Basically, there is no packaging and handling. Um, it's all, it, it comes as it is. Yeah. When we did the, um, the squash, for instance, that was already in storage, we just went through and stuff that was moldy, we... The, we just set it aside and the farmer takes care of that but um, stuff that looks good might have a couple of scratches in it or you know even have pieces missing out of it if it still looks like it's viable mm -hmm. we'll take it and we just d distribute it there, there's no refrigeration needed for it's just boxed yes. and delivered yes pretty much same day situation yes. okay okay and well it looks like we have another call coming in. So, caller, if you could go ahead and give us your name and the town from where you're calling and then your comment or question. Okay, my name is Daniel. I'm in Brooklyn. Question is, two questions, and then I'll hang up. What about uh, cans of food who, who have expired? That's the first question. You know, can they be given to food banks? And the second one is, what about all the disgusting food that's left over from places like McDonald's? Or, you know, with their time, I don't know how often they throw things out. Mm -hmm. But is there anything to do with, I mean, it's fat and sugar. Is there anything to do with that useful? Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll address those questions for you. Thank okay. you for calling, Thank you. Daniel. Um, would you McDonald's, like to say something? I don't deal with McDonald's. You don't deal with McDonald's at all? No. Hockey pucks. No. That's <laughs> <laughs> all I do with McDonald's. Okay. Um, well, how about the piece with 
Chris, you had mentioned some of the confusing dates, expiration dates, Best Buy dates. For Daniel's question here about the expired canned goods. Right. <clears throat> I would not be the expert on that particular stuff. Uh, okay. Most of the materials we go for are basically fresh or fresh produce things. Um, the dating systems at, on foodstuffs is currently being discussed at a USDA level. But it tends to be that I've noticed that haven't, haven't actually you know, been saved by our pantry because I hit some hard times mm -hmm. and going to the pantry and depending on them, they do seem to receive uh, cans that have been dented, mm -hmm. but they also have a huge amount of good food that's within code. Um, yeah. And I think that's one of the nice things about our pantries is that they are fairly well stocked. They have developed rapports with those producers and they get quality foods. So there's good materials for sure. And it looks like we have another phone caller coming in. The phone's getting active. So, caller, if you go ahead and give us your, your name and the town from where you're calling and then your comment or question. Yeah, my name's Matt. Uh, I'm from Warren. And uh, I think there's a, there's a huge resource that's not being used on the East Coast uh, in the groundfish industry. There's uh, the cod fishing that just went to 200 pounds a day for codfish because they think there isn't any, which means that uh, there's a lot of waste that's going overboard. And uh, one of the things they've done in Alaska, particularly with these factory trawlers, is uh, they let them keep halibut bycatch and salmon bycatch, and it comes in and it gets given away to uh, an organization that has the stuff cut up and given away to food pantries. I don't have the information in front of me because I'm driving, but it's, uh, it could be a big thing on the East Coast, but it's, uh, it's not used. It's not happening here because of... Uh, rules and regulations that uh, National Marine Fisheries Service has put into effect. So it's something that uh, down the line might uh, might very very well be a viable alternative to uh, getting some getting some pro protein from the ocean that can be used. And, uh, that's just a comment I had to make. So okay. thank you. You got a good show, and I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for calling in, Matt. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the fishery option later on through the show. Um, but just to jump back to the canned good piece, it would seem to me that if it wasn't edible, then maybe there was the composting option for expired canned goods. A canned, canned items um, generally are good beyond the sell-by or best-by date for quite a long time. Um, the, the dented cans are fine. If they're expanded a little bit, that's where your chances of botulism or other food poisoning is. But if the can is just a little bit damaged and it's not leaking, the, mm -hmm. the food actually lasts for a lot longer. It should still be yes. sealed and be safe. Yes. But yeah. if the can looks like it's kind of puffed up. Yeah, if, it's, if it looks like it's ready now. to explode or even just looks a little bit bigger than what it should be, then it's probably safe not safer not to use it. Okay. Okay. And then I guess just to quickly, the other the other question about the McDonald's piece, maybe that's a fuel, possible fuel source or <laughs> composting, but I don't think either of our guests are there interested in There have been studies done with McDonald's food where people have taken the food out and put it on their counters for six months and it does not change. It doesn't get moldy. It does. It looks the same as it did the day they bought it. Mm -hmm. And when they, they started posting stuff like this is... It's not fit for human consumption. You know, Matt's comment um, reminded me of something that was happening more recently than not with these uh, wonderful abundances of good foods that we wonder about. For mm -hmm. example, in certain regions of the, our East Coast here, the white-tailed deer population yes. is pretty high, and in certain communities, um, they have allowed or not allowed, for example, uh, the harvesting of those animals. In certain areas of that, of this particular region where they have allowed um, extra tags to be offered to uh, people to hunt and cull those herds, those animals now are, are available to the prison population and, and pantries. And it usually it's manifested through a meat cutter or a butcher service that willingly does that mm -hmm. um, and offers that back. So I think that's pretty neat. And I think we can only hope, Matt, that it'll continue with the notion of fresh food stuffs coming from our oceans, mm -hmm. not to be wasted and to be utilized. I know routinely now, um, if there's a roadkill, that the PDs tend to have a list of individuals that they will call, and somebody will turn out and pick up that carcass and go through it and see if it's viable or not. Mm -hmm. 
we were set up in Bar Harbor if it did happen that we were going to um, have a open season on Whitetail, which did not pass. But what had happened in the preparation for that particular um, d- discussion was what were they going to do with all the whitetail? Mm-hmm. And that venison, we, were, we had volunteered, meaning Food for All, had volunteered to help process and, and move that if we had to. But that is not an issue at the, at the present moment. Mm-hmm. We do have opportunities, though, when the seasons are in, for example, when the shrimpers were shrimping in Frenchman's Bay, where we would provide a huge amount of our apparently wholesome food to those fishermen, and they would give us shrimp. And we would do that just as a, a regular barter mm-hmm. and provided hundreds of pounds of shrimp when, mm-hmm. when we were shrimping. Right now, I don't believe there's a season on it. Yep. Um, so it's, it, it is. It's basically getting out there, knowing what's available in your own neighborhood, and then developing those uh, dialogues and friendships to move this kind of thing along. And a lot of it is overcoming prejudice. Uh-huh. Overcoming prejudice and even some of the stigmas that yes. may be associated with it's a yes. huge issue. Yeah, I failed to mention our mission, um, by the way, <laughs> which is to reduce waste through education and service. Mm-hmm. So everybody listening here is f- helping us fulfill that mission, and and it is ultimately if we complete our mission, we'll be out of a job. Yeah. <laughs> That's ideal. It right? is. It is <laughs> ideal. Well, it looks like we have another caller. So caller, if you could go ahead and give us your name and the town from where you're calling, and then your comment or question. Yeah, hi. This is Frank over in Lemoyne. Hello, Frank. And I want to give you kudos and thanks for having uh, this show on. And I'm glad we got finally got downtown, downtown Chris Brown on, on the radio. <laughs> thanks, Frank. Um, Chris donated our first meal that everybody eats, our, one of his hams from his home-growing piggies, year about four, five, six years ago. And what Chris does, in my mind, is he takes the grooviness, the boutiqueness out of the food chain these days and gets down to the real the real meat and potatoes so to speak of what food's about about eating i'm a food pusher and, and it's <laughs> and i'm glad the is doing this but sometimes the organic food movement leaves out or maybe not by purpose obviously but by affordability some of the people who need food the worst yep. you know it gets to you know food has become more than just food it's become another consumer a grooviness, you know, unsustainable thing, food. You know, you rent a fancy storefront and you sell very high-end, you know, added-value fancy food, which most of the world doesn't think that way. They think about, I need to eat. And that's what downtown Chris Brown thinks to the booth. Well, Frank, thanks thanks for for calling in and and giving Chris that that vote of support. We do have another caller, so call up. You can go ahead and give us your, your name and the town from where you're calling and then your comment or question. Hi, this is Jean Gale from Belfast. Um, Some time ago when I was sort of involved with coastal fruits and farms, uh, I suggested to them that they might consider, uh, you know, they were, one of the things they were going to do was store uh, local vegetables for farmers so that they uh, wouldn't waste it. And I suggested to them that they uh, get the vegetables, which were not pretty enough to sell, and chop them up and uh, cook them into food for pets, dogs specifically. And of course they went out of business. They never did pursue that because they had other things. Meanwhile, I still have dogs and I don't like the idea of feeding my dogs the stuff that is available in the grocery stores. If you read what's on the list and do some research, you wouldn't want to feed that to your children. So, uh, meanwhile, there are also now food pantries for dogs and pets, and of course, most people are probably giving the uh, cheap grocery store uh, Walmart-type foods, which are not the best for animals. Of course, it's better than starving. But I wonder uh, if there's some way to use, for example, your uh, uninteresting cuts of venison or seafood or even vegetables maybe not now, but down the line to uh, feed our, our poor pets or even our not-so-poor pets who would might, people like me would like to buy that stuff uh, rather than the super, super expensive high-end pet food that you can get if you don't want to buy supermarket brands. Okay, June, I think that um, Chris wanted to talk a little bit about the pet food. Thanks for, thanks for calling in. 
Thanks, June. Um, part of the model of the organic recycler is to look at it, you know, for a hierarchy of people, animals, compost, and fuel. And we do envision being able to make rations or components for a completed ration for animals. To give you an example, um, in that USDA feed ingredient handbook, there's an A to Z listing of what is acceptable to feed critters. And it goes basically from acorns to zucchini and everything in between. Um, how about poultry litter is considered an acceptable feed ingredient for beef. And that's just bizarre, but so is also aspen trees that are above ground and ground to within three quarters of an inch. So there's lots of different potential materials that could be used in food uh, for animals. But you and I know we want a hearty ration. Going back to the example of, let's say, bakery waste, we collect that foodstuffs, get the good stuff to the people, and now have this abundance of food that a bunch of bread, let's say stale bread, that could go into a completed ration, or we can make that a component of a completed ration, and or those protein products too. So there's two types of rations. One's considered a wet ration, and one's considered a dry ration. A wet ration being more than 12% of moisture content. A dry ration basically is the pelletized stuff that we buy in a bag and, tor and turn out. Um, so a dry ration you know, it looks dry, but a wet ration does not necessarily look wet. It could be things like loaves of bread, heads of lettuce, apples. That would be considered a wet ration. If we took those, let's say, bakery products, that could be anything from Dunkin' Donuts to boxes of flour that were gone by, that had gone by. Those then could be brought up to category and specifics so that the uh, feed company, like let's say those larger companies, uh, Purina, for example, would buy that component and add that to their completed dry ration. So if you grab the tag off of some of your animal feeds and you read the listings of what's in there, you may see a new category or newer category, which would be considered bakery waste or dehydrated bakery waste. And that could combine... Other foodstuffs involved with that? <clears throat> bakery waste category is huge. Is it? Exactly. So that's, so there's those, there's these very broad categories, but they fit a specific need in a, an apl applicable ration. Ultimately, if we're concerned about our animals, then we need to look at it from that point of view on what's a nutritional, uh, what's a nutritional ration for our particular animal and then build, build that ration to that. Mm -hmm. But there's certainly standards that are out there as well. Okay. Okay. How about the piece about the food pantries for pets? That was news to me. There's a lot of that going around in the country. There is? Yes. Just for better sources of food And there's actually soup kitchens for pets, too. Really? Yeah. People that are taking the, the gleaned foods mm -hmm. and turn it in, into pet food for, you know, people that can't afford it or... Just to have a healthier food just, source yes. for yes. cats and dogs. Yeah, Tina's yeah. absolutely right. Mm -hmm. A lot of the folks that do come through the community meals are also seeking foods for their animals. Yeah. And I know the pantries, um, when they ask for donations, specifically at our uh, church, there's a request sometimes specifically for animal food stuffs mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. I do think, you know, people, um, I don't know what the numbers are, but I would think that uh, people who utilize those services are probably um, larger pet keepers. Yes. The more the more good dogs at The home. good people tend to keep the critters, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and they care for their animals, and they want to feed them too. Okay. Okay. Um, how about we get back to, there was a little men mention, uh, we talked a bit about kind of the stigma around the whole situation and also the prejudice piece. And I'm just wondering... Um, Tina, maybe from the work that you've been doing the past couple of years, to speak a little bit more to that? Is there, is it an obstacle or a challenge? There's a lot of, um, I guess you'd call it, um, not superstition, but there's a lot of prejudice between classifications of people. A lot of mistrust, either that goes in both directions. Mm -hmm. um, those with, those without, they, they, they have preconceived notions of what each other is. Um, if we can get by those barriers and realize that we are all just humans, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter how much money you make, it doesn't matter how little money you make, everybody needs to be fed. Mm -hmm. um, we all have a right to 
decent food. Um, I haven't found it to be much of a hindrance. Um, the, the simmering pot in Blue Hill, there's people that go there that are, would be classified as wealthy. There's people that go there that really need the food. But mm -hmm. the, what we've got to do is get them to intermingle so that they can see that, you know, it's Chris's idea with the what he does up at his his um, kitchen there. It needs to be more widespread. Mm -hmm. And have that more social piece. The interaction part of the it, The interaction yes. piece. Yes. Yes. Put the more human face to, to the issue that yes. way, it seems. Yep. Um, and, Chris, I know at the Thursday meals that you have in the, the church basement there, I'll admit that I've been there a few times, yeah. in full disclosure. So <laughs> I may ask questions, but I... I begged you to come uh, a few times. <laughs> no, I've been there, I've been there. Um, and just, could you describe that social scene, I guess? Uh, you know, if you walk in... For the first time, what would you what would you see? What would you what would you feel? The feedback I've received um, is extremely positive. I think, you know, folks have said the the energy here is very positive, and the diversity is amazing. Mm -hmm. And that was purely by accident. I, I am a kind of like one track minded fellow, and I was just trying to get rid of the food, and the community built around it, mm -hmm. and and I see that now. It. it it's amazing, quite frankly. I'm a very fortunate person, um, and and it is. It's it's through the diversity of that. It, it's through the um, destigmatization. It's through the realization that you know what we're all basically in the same boat. You know, if, if I can help my neighbor, or if we can just put this out there so that those other folks and all, all of us can come around uh, a table and share a meal. I think that's pretty much how this country started, but that's that's history. The other piece is that, you know, I remember back in the day when I was just doing a direct distribution on the street, and I still do quite a bit of that, but, you know, the, the DEA and the police would follow me around, and I had to stop and say, hey, you know what? We're feeding people. That's what this is about. And they wanted to know why. And I think my response was, well, full bellies, don't they stay off the street? And... I remember the chief looking back at me, and he's like, you're right. I'm like, yeah, full bellies. They stay off the street. They don't go out and fight. They don't go looking for troubles. They're, mm -hmm. they're fed. They, there's no reason to. And it doesn't. It, that's a physiological thing. You yep. know, that's a real human thing. So I think one of the common stigmas about people that are hungry is that if they have money for this, this, and this, they should have money for food. Um, the food that's available in the grocery stores is not the most wholesome food, as most people know. Um, I have a saying, heard a saying recently, if your grandmother wouldn't recognize it as food, don't eat it. Hmm. And, and it's true. Our farmers and our, our grandparents and our ancestors, they had the right idea. And they didn't just do for themselves. They did for the community. Yep. Um, and there was still strife back then, but not to the same degree. Okay. Well, I think we have another caller. So, caller, could you go ahead and give us your name and the town from where you're calling? Uh, this is Betsy, and I'm calling from Blue Hill. And uh, I know Tina from my work at the Tree of Life Food Pantry. And it was just a joy to work with her this summer and the summer before. The Gleaning Initiative has been really key to getting us lots and lots more produce, fresh produce, local produce, to people who come in. And it's really been great to be able to offer that to the folks who are coming in so that they have more to choose from than just the staples. So I'd like to thank them and Chris with the Gleaning Initiative and Hannah and everyone because it really is wonderful to get the fresh and local food out to people who appreciate it. And I'd like to also, uh, on back of what Tina said, uh, folks who come in, they can. They knew how to can. They love all of the old root vegetables that... Sometimes the young people don't even recognize, and um, just we need to get the food to the people. Thank you. All right. Thank you for calling in, Betsy. Thank you so much. <clears throat> um, I think, you know, that's an interesting comment that Betsy makes in that, you know, this is more of a recent phenomenon where 
how come we haven't done this before? You know, <laughs> I mean, I know there's, I know, and I know I just offended people, but I didn't mean that. I mean, there's obviously people have been doing this forever since cleaning's been around forever, but it seems like there's a collective uh, recognition that's happening. Uh, not, you know, as Maine goes, so goes the nation, but there's other places in the world that are doing this. They're doing it better, maybe. Not as good. I don't know. I know that we've gotten really good at this food for all, a community meal thing. We can go out and consult with any municipality now. We can set this up. Mm-hmm. We can set this up in your town. Not only that, but we can set up uh, a farming model that will manage some of these other materials. In Switzerland, they do... Um the communities will get together, those who want to farm, and they'll all coordinate their vegetables by what this neighbor's growing, this one will not. They'll all grow something different so that they can share amongst themselves and everybody gets something different. So they're not having an overflow of tomatoes or they're not having an overflow of squash. Everybody's got something different to offer to the pot. and that Yes. Yes, and it all goes to the community. And and adding to that, Tina, would be the notion of, let's say, if we did go out to another municipality and show them how we can divert their waste Mm -hmm. and also productively grow animals back for their pantry. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what we've been doing, too. All right, well, it looks like we have another another call. Um, Caller, if you go ahead and give us your name and the town from where you're calling and then your comment or question. Yeah, this is uh, David. I'm calling from Brooklyn. And... uh, I just heard about Switzerland, and you know, my my uh, my whole being said yes. You know, I'm I'm part of a, a sort of a semi-fictional group of small gardeners and farmers who sometimes think of ourselves as the Five Farm Matrix, which is just sort of a name we came up of with. But uh, the notion is exactly that. But together uh, with planning, we could manage to behave as a, a larger farm would uh, and be able to put our, our smaller acreages and individual efforts to much better use. And I just wonder whether that uh, model has uh, taken life at all in the state and w- whether I could find any uh, any help in setting this up from people who are uh, already doing it. Okay. Thank you for calling, David. Uh, David, I believe there's, there are many places. Uh, Healthy Acadia is a great example of some of the programs that have uh, bridged farm to school, uh, that are bridging that farm to community piece as well. So I'd encourage you to reach out to them. And I also think there's other folks like us, uh, entrepreneurs, that are doing these kinds of things. Uh, for example, I know in Boston, a former Trader Joe exec has moved uh, into getting foodstuffs and creating a uh, meal plan or food available to people who are low socioeconomic standing. I think um, our model is, is does that where we can grow um, some pork and then get that back to a pantry at cost. I think the other uh, thing that's available is through those kind of organizations, the seeds mon- seed money to do that. We were approved for uh, an award once where we had pitched growing um, or dedicating a small greenhouse and the produce, the majority of that produce, to a particular meal site, and that had been approved. We didn't pursue it, though, at the time. But um, those things, I believe, are coming, becoming more popular. Certainly, we're very interested in doing that and presently working with a couple individuals writing uh, grants for that. And that's, um, you know, we're getting towards the end of the show here, but one of the things that I wanted to ask about is the is the growth of these activities and I mean why, why is it happening it seems like if gleaning's been around for thousands of years then why does it seem like now maybe in the past five or ten is the need greater uh, it seems like the needs always been there but the needs always there's always there's always been the poor and people who are nutritionally impoverished and unfortunately <clears throat> the trend is increasing um, when we're, we're noticing that 15% of Maine homes are food unstable, and the notion of food security and insecurity has uh, become one of the last frontiers, if you will. No, it, it is growing. We have a wider disparity of wealth in our country. We have many, many, many people who were crushed during the last fiscal downturn, and you know, people whose entire 
uh, life savings have been wiped out by the blink of a greedy, you know, person. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunately, Chris, the, uh, the the need is growing. That's why we're seeing more bureaucracies developing these kinds of types of things. As certainly many, as Tina has spontaneously volunteered her time, uh, that's occurring as well. And then you have unorganized people like myself just running and trying to get a bunch of it going on as well. I think I, I wanted just to mention that real quickly. From what gets wasted in our country alone, just our country, uh, is somewhere, like I said, 40% to 50% of all the food ready to be consumed. With that, we can feed the people that are in poverty, but not just the people in poverty, the nutritionally impoverished as well. And that's really close to my heart as a speech pathologist because I know that if we are to get speech and language or higher brain function, we really need to have the uh, you know, the nutrition to support our, our physical state. So mm -hmm. that's my passion there. Mm -hmm. I hope to continue to do this work and see it you know, expand. And, and thank yeah. you so much for having us uh, today. It's well, sure, sure. Well, we've got a, to, few, a few minutes left. But to Tina, get to your there... question about if the need is growing, I don't think the need is growing necessarily. I think the awareness is growing. Mm -hmm. um, we're moving out of a me, myself, and I era and moving back into a community era and realizing that the more we help each other, the more we're helping ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's that's what's growing is the awareness that the bigger picture and people realizing that we're all we're all just humans yes. here yes everybody is one paycheck away from being in you know homeless not everybody well <laughs> not everybody no we many people are one paycheck i mean if they lose one paycheck and they have an automobile that needs to be repaired yes. everything's becoming higher priced mm -hmm. um less available mm -hmm. and we're just moving back to what the basics are. Okay. okay. No, I do believe the actual numbers are significantly increasing on people who are unable to provide those things too. Because because we're coming out of the me, myself, and I. They're they're so used to the haves and the have-nots and the being able to get what they want when they want it and instant gratification, and they're starting to realize that they they can't. All right, looks like we have one phone call we're going to try to squeeze in at the end here. So call if you go ahead and give us your name and the town from where you're calling. And uh, we only have a couple minutes left, just to let you know. Hi, it's uh, Pat from Sedgwick, and I just want to say how grateful I am for um, the fresh vegetables each week. And I know myself and others look forward to it, and um, it's a good time for sharing recipes and what to do with it. And it's been a um, lifesaver for many people. Um, health saver, perhaps. Um, so I really appreciate it, and many do. Thank you. Okay, thank you for calling in, Pat. It's a great way to kind of wrap up the show, I think, is appreciation. Um, but I just want to remind folks that this has been Common Ground Radio, uh, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And today we've been talking about food recovery and gleaning as a modern gleaning and traditional gleaning. I think we have kind of both ends of the spectrum here today. And I just want to thank uh, Chris Brown from Brown Family Farm in Otter Creek and Food for All. Thank you for being here today, Chris. Thank you very much. And I wanted to wish all your listeners a very happy new year and extend an invitation to all to Food for All, a community meal, Thursdays from 4 to 7 on Ledge Lawn Avenue. Hope to see you there. And uh, we also Tina Kegley from Sedgwick and her sounds like lots of volunteering uh, activities through the Gleaning Initiative with Healthy Acadia and the Magic Food Bus, which you didn't get to hear a lot about, <laughs> um, but it seems more seasonal and things. Yes. And did you have any kind of last, last comments before we get ready to wrap up the show? Um, Just we're looking at different options for the food bus for this year, doing different trying to get into different areas with it. Um, anything that people, any suggestions people have, we're open to it, mm -hmm. hearing about it. Okay. Um, areas that may need or may want to have Looking it. Looking for more access. Yes. yes. Okay, that's good to know. All right, well, I think we're pretty much at the end of the show here. Again, it's Common Ground Radio. And I'd like to thank Joel Mann for engineering the show. And I am your host, CJ Walk, and tune in again for the first Friday of every month for Common Ground Radio.
Support for WERU programming comes from our listeners. Visit WERU.org to learn more. Thank you. Each week, new...